0: Well, why don't we go ahead and get started. Um, We're continuing our lessons on the doctrine of providence. And when I was here last time, which was in that other room, we took up the providence of God in the affairs of nations. And I explained that the sequence we're following is from the least... Personal to the most personal. And uh, moving, as we get to nations, we're getting very close to persons because to rule nations and govern nations, God governs hearts, hearts of kings. And we'll see that even more tonight. And then uh, we'll move ahead to uh, God's providence over individuals and individual choices and individual salvation. So it kind of becomes more controversial because people take more offense at the rule of God over their own soul than they do over wind. But uh, the same God who rules the wind rules the heart, I believe. And we'll try to get to that. But, you know, we won't get to that until January because there's one more BITC in December and it's next week. And I think what I want to do next week is uh, make invite the whole church on sunday to a kind of listening post feedback time concerning the mission statement that i've been preaching on i've been looking for when can we do something like this and all of our sunday nights are taken and and uh so i think what i'm going to do and you can decide whether you want to come or not on the basis of this. i hope you will is next wednesday night take this whole time to to let people ask questions and make comments about what they're hearing and what they're reading in the mission statement, and as I try to unfold it in the pulpit. I just think there needs to be some give and take instead of just one-way communication with regard to the mission statement. There is a lot of give and take going on informally, and especially in these 17 committees, but uh, that's my plan anyway. So we will not do the providence of God again until the third week of January because prayer week is week number one, and we'll we'll have a special speaker during prayer week. And then uh, the next week is uh, study leave, I think. Or no, no, that's the week we start, and the week after that is study leave. So anyway, second week of January. So that's the plan for where we are now. And I'd like us to begin with, with prayer tonight. Father, what we're about to look at, as I meditated on it again this morning, this afternoon, is so powerfully encouraging and emboldening in living the Christian life. What you undertake to do on behalf of your people at the level of nations is stunning. And we give you praise for that, Lord. We praise you and glorify you tonight that you are the god of the nations that the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the lord and he moves it wherever he will and you always move it in ways that in the end bring the greatest blessing to the greatest number of people and i thank you so much that you have our good at your heart you rule the nations. Many times, as we will see, it does not look this way, but is this way. And I pray that our hearts would be opened and our minds would be sharp to understand these things, and that we would be compliant to your teaching and your word, and that the effect on our lives, as we're going to see in Acts chapter 4, would be radiant and dynamic in with. Pray, Lord, for any tonight who are here who have brought into this room burdens that are making it very hard for them to even think about this. Would you draw near and lift that burden to such an extent, Lord, that this truth could get underneath it? And then when you set it back down for its appointed season, may it be lighter. I thought I'd begin with the definition again as we've seen weeks ago but it's good to go back to it so in case you're new tonight you'll know what we mean by the providence of God this is taken from the Heidelberg Catechism 1563 question 27 what then is the providence of God it is the almighty and everywhere present power of God whereby as it were by his hand he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass rain and drought fruitful and barren years meat and drink health and sickness riches and poverty yea all things come not by chance but by his fatherly hand so R.C. Sproul has a new book it's a couple years old now called Not a Chance and it's about that in fact when I was with him over in Grand Rapids last September. He put this on an overhead, and he circled this, not by chance. So the providence of God, as it's historically understood in Reformed catechisms, and this is the way I understand it, and I believe it's biblical, is that the providence of God is his everywhere present power by which he governs all things by his Father and his. Now, what we're going to do tonight is uh, pick up where we left off last time and we're going to focus on some lessons from Daniel about, first of all, Nebuchadnezzar's pride and then we're going to focus on some things from Ezra about the rebuilding of the temple and remember, what we're doing here is, is looking for biblical evidences of how God rules nations and to what end does he do it. So, we're going to take Nebuchadnezzar as an example and his uh, The Braggy King of Babylon. How many of you read that book to your kids? The Braggy King of Babylon. Little, little, what do they call them, those little books? I don't remember. It's been so long, but I'll have to dig them out, I guess. Okay. Let's read. I tried to pick out the key verses, there's still a lot of them. Uh, he had a dream Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he calls Daniel to interpret the dream and here's the interpretation O king this is the interpretation this is the decree of the most high which has come upon my lord the king that you be driven from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven And seven periods of time, perhaps weeks, I'm not sure, will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that, um, it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. So uh, the dream's point was that Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to be driven out of the realm of ordinary mankind to learn this lesson. The Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he he wishes because evidently Nebuchadnezzar is getting a little uppity in his thinking about his rule over Babylon all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king 12 months later he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon the king reflected and said is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the mighty, by the might of my power, and for the glory of my majesty. Now that's strange. I mean, you stop and think of this: that he had been told by Daniel that in order to learn that that's not true, this dream was going to have to be fulfilled in his life, and 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 only a year later, twelve months later, he's forgotten his. Not in touch. It's a scary thing, you know. If if we think that we can can solve the problem of sin by a single warning <clears throat> or a single confrontation with someone, we're kidding ourselves about the power of the deceitfulness of the human heart. So Nebuchadnezzar, wise as he was to build his kingdom, was certainly not wise in dealing with his own dreams. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. We all learned in the seventh grade or maybe the fifth grade or, that this is a passive verb. Right? Yes, that's right. Past perfect, partisan. Very good. But passive is what I have in mind right now. It's passive, which means the subject of the verb is unexpressed. Who is it? Who's doing this action? God. That's what this said right here. And he bestows it, God bestows it on whomever he pleases. And he takes it away from whomever he pleases. So God is removing the sovereignty from him. You will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize, here it comes again, that the Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wills, wishes. Here's what happens. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of let me stop there why'd God do it this way (laughs) why this any any sense of why God made him go insane like this so that he became like cattle and uh, like an eagle his fingers like birds claws his hair like feathers What's, what is this? Why, why, why is God doing it this way? Maybe something will turn up to help us decide. At the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. A year ago, I, I took this raised his eyes towards heaven and his reason returned. and I put that on my door in my office. Uh, it was two years ago, I can't remember. because what hit me is that uh, reason, right thinking depends on directing your mind toward heaven. He turned his eyes to heaven, and when he turned his eyes to heaven, his reason returned and uh, there are brilliant people teaching at the University of Minnesota whose eyes are not toward heaven and brilliant people work in the newspaper office and big industry and, and whose minds have a native brilliance and they are not reasonable people as long as God is not in their thinking because it is highly unreasonable to leave most important reality out of your life. It's highly unreasonable. It's, it's If you ask, what is a reasonable way to proportion your consciousness and the importance of reality? And if you said, it is reasonable to devote maybe 2% of your thought life to that which is ninety-nine percent of reality. That's not reasonable. And that's the way most people live, even the most brilliant people. So that the the irrationality just isn't plain. But it is highly irrational. I I think God in this in this way of doing it here wants to portray a picture of what all non-heaven-directed thought life is like—it's—it's it's, uh, animal-like. We are more like the animals when we do not direct our eyes towards heaven than we are like humans and like God. I, I think we live in a day. You know, if you want to, I think you should always be praying in your family devotions, your personal devotions. Be praying, Lord give me some sentences, just simple, crisp, short, truth sentences to speak into unbelievers' minds at work. Because they don't have anybody doing that for them by and large. I think we tend to think all or nothing with regard to our our unbelieving friends. How am I going to get into a, a place where we have an hour and I can share enough and we can have enough? Questions that they make a decision. Well, God will give you that eventually, probably, if you ask for it. But short of that, there's a lot of truth-sowing that needs to happen. Sentences like, God is the most important person in the universe. Just say that to somebody this week. God is the most important person in the universe. And they'll go home and they'll remember that sentence and they'll say, you Never know, thought of that. If, if he exists, that's certainly true. And I, I say he exists. And if he's the most important person, I'm sure not acting like it. You know, little series of thoughts can, can start in people's minds. By, so pray that God will give you just crisp sentences about that. Or no, another one might be. Jesus Christ can never die again. Just say that. And the implications of that sentence means he can't ever be defeated. He's going to live forever and everybody will give an account to him. But you don't need to say all that. Just Jesus Christ will never die again. Hmm. Direct people toward heaven, in other words. Get their minds thinking about things nobody else is telling them to think about. They'll never hear those sentences on the television, ever. <clears throat> I, I blessed his Nebuchadnezzar documenting his turnaround. I raised my eyes towards heaven, reason to to me. I blessed the Most High, praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him What hast thou done? At that time my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me Now I Nebuchadnezzar exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true his ways are just And he is able to humble. He's able to to humble those who walk in pride. Now, let's ponder what he said here for just a minute before we go on to another text. Um, his, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. That's like saying Jesus can never die. How does that relate to. Christ or God's ruling the nations? And I think the answer is, if your kingdom or your dominion, your kingdom, your dominion, is everlasting, endures from generation to generation, then um, you can't be defeated. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, and he knows he's going to die. He knows that his kingdom is going to pass over to Cyrus, or Darius, or Artaxerxes. There's a, there's, a, there's another one coming, and God declares, "My kingdom never ends, and therefore yours come and go, and mine stays." And therefore, I think a necessary implication is, "I rule. I'm in charge here." All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Now. That troubling sentence. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have eternal life. Does that fit here? God so loved the world, all the inhabitants of the world are counted as nothing. Can you put those together? What does this mean here? All the inhabitants of the world, or the earth, are accounted as nothing. What do you think that means? How would you paraphrase that? Okay, explain. It's a power statement, not a value statement. Explain. Okay. All right. All All the inhabitants of the earth have no power as compared with God. Anybody got another angle on it? Does that sound right to everybody? They are... Nothing in that they are powerless compared to God. What? Comparing them to an army. You're going to weigh them in the balances as far as who, who's going to win here or who's going to. You, you look out on a sea of soldiers and you had an atom bomb they'd be as nothing because you you drop it and then vaporize them. That's probably right let's 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 get it from the context here. but he does according to his will see the but here, the contrast here, they're accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will. so the, the contrast here seems to be this, this nothingness here has to do with their will. What what force does a human will have in running the world in comparison to God's will? And it seems like he's saying the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will. Another way to say it would be not, not just force maybe, but... Um, the other thing about a will is not only its forcefulness, but its, its intelligence and its wisdom. Who has been his counselor? Job asks, and Paul quotes in Romans 11. The, the counsel of the earth, your and my wisdom, counts for zero in running the world. God never consults with his creatures as to the wisest way to run the world. He never says, hmm, I think i better seek some counsel about this situation. Never. We are nothing when it comes to counseling the wisdom of God. So I would add to Bob's power statement a wisdom, an intelligence statement. It's true at that level also. And among the inhabitants of the earth, uh, his will is accomplished. No one can uh, stay or ward off his hand. Here's this no one. So if you consult everybody on the earth, do they have any power to stay or hinder or frustrate his hand when he decrees that hand to move? And the answer is no. So they are as nothing when it comes to resisting his hand. That would be a clear contextual implication. They are as nothing when it comes to warding off his hand. That's a power thing. One more. They can't say to him, what doest thou? Now that that's another wisdom thing. They can't come into the courtroom and say, give an account of yourself. Now, Paul quoted that in Romans 9. You know, when, when you find fault with the God because he's so powerful, uh, and say, well, why does he still find fault if nobody can resist his will? And Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Nobody, nobody can put God in the dock. I mean we try. Books are written all over the place. God is in the dock everywhere in America. Anytime a tragedy happens, God's in the dock. Give an account of yourself, God. I know how things ought to be done. I know this shouldn't have happened. You give an account of yourself. Nebuchadnezzar had to become like a an ox in the field and like an eagle with his hair long and like fingernails like eagle's claws to learn you can't talk like that to God. That you can't call God into account. And if you do, in a season of heartache, you eventually will come to regret it and repent. And we must shepherd each other through those times. Because I do not doubt that before this year is out, I will hear somebody say, how could God do that? Or why does he act that way? Or whatever. And we will say in silence, you will know in due time. Any questions or comments on this lesson from Nebuchadnezzar? Let me tell you a little story that happened to me this week. Um, I don't think she would mind, though I won't use her name. I was talking to a young woman only in her late 20s who uh, had a near-death experience about a month ago. She was uh, on a boat in uh, um, Gunflint Lake and uh, capsized. The water's 38 degrees. She's a half a mile from shore. <coughs> and the boat's and uh, you don't you don't live longer than what, 15, 20 minutes in that kind of water? And she said, she was telling me this story to, to relate the effect it's had on her since, um, that uh, she said, I've heard stories that your whole life goes before your eyes as you think you've got no time left. And she said, that's not what happened to me what happened to me was that at that moment I felt a crisis that I could have my life if I really wanted it bad enough. And what opened before me was God. She said, I saw God in a way I've never seen him before. And I cannot describe to you I mean, she, was, she didn't mean an apparition, I don't think. She, she meant bigness. She used the word majestic and some others, she said, he was so big and unbelievably majestic that I, I felt like I had been trifling most of my life. And she swam a half a mile in that water and was saved. And uh, she, she hadn't been going to church for a long time, she said, and wanted to get connected. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, that's one good effect. Um, But I I think we shouldn't have to be thrown into water in order to recognize that God is big and not to be trifled with. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar had to be thrown out in the field for seven weeks or whatever it was, and uh, she evidently had to be tossed overboard in order for God to get her attention. That last word, pride, I wanted to say another word about that. God knows he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Very often I pray, Lord, and these are scary prayers. The elders were praying some of these prayers the other night about our willingness to do whatever God wants us to do at Bethlehem but I, I say Lord do whatever you must do in my life not let me fall victim to a ministry destroying pride kill me I can remember I used to run in Pasadena when I was in seminary I run a mile every morning We'd run the same thing I'd go down the alleys over here I'd turn around down there and run down Orange Grove Avenue and the sun would be coming up at certain times of the year and my heart would be pounding so fast I'd say it's going to explode right out of my chest and I would would just pray as I ran only keep me alive if I'm useful please don't let me live beyond my usefulness and I think you all ought to pray that way because this is the most dangerous of all sins here, and uh, ministry has its temptations to it, and where you are has its temptations to it, and it can take very quiet forms, and it can take very upfront forms. But it is such a dangerous thing that God, in His mercy, will take you to the shed. And uh, you know, I, I just say, Lord, if it's this, do this. If it's throwing me overboard in the lake, do that. If it's the loss of my health, do that. If it's ministry troubles, do that. If it's a wayward child, do that. Do whatever you have to do, Lord, not to let this happen. This is the name given to the wrong view of God implied here. Now, the other text that we looked at a few weeks ago that relates to this is James 4. 15 and 16 I just wanted to read it again because it struck me I didn't notice I had not noticed this before that in James 4 when he's talking about the providence in our ordinary daily lives he says come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go up to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and get gain what is your life? you're a mist that appears for a little while instead you ought to say if the Lord wills we will live or do this or that as it is, you boast in your arrogance. So it's arrogant to say, I'm going home for Christmas. Unless there's the tacit, doesn't have to be spoken, conviction, if the Lord wills, I'll get home for Christmas. If that's not there, you're arrogant. And you might be the meekest person on the face of the earth. But if your theology, this is scary theology really matters he says if you if you have the conviction that this is not true namely that God is not the one who determines whether you get to Duluth or or california or, or anoka or wherever, whether you get home tonight or not then you are arrogant so this text in James 4:16. What is your life? You are a mist that appears a little while and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance by simply saying, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there and trade and get game. Doesn't sound arrogant, does it? It's just godless. And godlessness is the height of arrogance. And arrogance is the height of unreasonableness. And therefore, you must turn your eyes toward heaven in order to have your reason return to you. Any question or comment about Nebuchadnezzar? Or we go on to three more kings in that same period of history I'm going to take you through three kings in the rebuilding of the temple after the Babylonian exile and show you that Ezra in writing his book was set on making sure that his readers knew that while these kings were apparently doing remarkable things to enable the temple to be rebuilt, they were not doing them without the providence of God in their lives. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to build him a house in Jerusalem. The Lord stirred up the spirit of of Cyrus king of Persia so the Lord's in charge here to get this done now it says he's doing this to fulfill a prophecy I want to read you that prophecy Um, many of you have memorized it and you didn't know you memorized it because uh, you didn't memorize the verse just before the part that you memorized namely Jeremiah 29 Uh, you've all I mean not all of you but Many of you have memorized. I know the plans I have for you. Give you a future and a hope. Plans for welfare and not for evil. Well, the verse that leads right up to that. Jeremiah 29, 10. Thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed. That's what's happened here. They're completed. So it's time for the prophecy to be fulfilled. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That's what's going to happen here. They're going to go back from Babylon to, to uh, Israel. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil. So now, when you memorize that verse 11, you can see it under the banner of a sovereign God who rules the nations to make that good happen. That's the point here. I know the plans I have for you. I'm going to do you good and not evil. How? I'm going to go to Cyrus, and I'm going to put into Cyrus a will to send you back to your homeland so that you can build a temple and have a homeland again. And you can just extrapolate that out to your situation. Same promise holds true for you. God will do you good. And He will move kings for you. We'll see that again here in some other texts. So He he fulfills the word of the Lord. Now let me point out something here. This is kind of a parenthesis, but maybe not, depending on how you're thinking about it. When God prophesies a thing to happen, sometimes we think of that in terms of His omniscience, so that he knows what's going to happen and history runs on its own steam and God, being omniscient, knows the events that are out there. And we stop right there and give him the glory for his knowledge, but we don't tend to think that God undertakes mightily to fulfill the word that he speaks about that future event. But here you get a different vision of how God knows the future. God knows the future because he makes the future. Okay, look at this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, by the word of Jeremiah, the Lord acted. So back then in Jeremiah 29, God just didn't make a prediction about how history runs on its own. He said, in 70 years, you're going to be brought back here, coming back. And then when the time comes, God does it. He does it. And you see this again and again in prophetic literature in the Old and in the New Testament. So don't let the omniscience of God in your thinking be abstracted from the omnipotence of God. God knows the future because he ruled the future. He didn't, he couldn't know it for sure, which is why, by the way, many theologians today, including Clark Pinnock and others, are saying that he doesn't know the future because they know the implication for his power and they don't want to give him that power. The only way you can consistently deny God the right to rule history is to take away his infallible foreknowledge of history. Think about that. It's very, that's true. That's accurate. Because if God infallibly knows what's going to happen tomorrow, it's going to happen tomorrow. And that's because he rules it. And so there are, there's a whole movement inside evangelicalism to deny the omniscience of God. which is sad. Here's the next step. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the rain. Now this I would call a setback, right? Here you have God moving on Cyrus saying, Go! Go! and build a house for your God. When they get there, the people, uh, the people of the land, these are non-Jews here, they discourage them and they keep them from doing it. This is a terrible setback here. So what's going to happen? How's God going to handle this? He raises up two prophets. They each have a book in the Old Testament. When the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judea and Jerusalem in the name of the, God, of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem. So God sees this discouraging development. And it lasts for a while. And in his sovereign purposes, he lets the discouragement come. He lets it be effective. They don't build. And then, when the time is right, he sends a prophet, two prophets. And they start speaking words. Read the second chapter of Haggai if you want to know how to stir up people to build when when they're discouraged. Read what the prophet Haggai said. It's only two chapters long, I think, in the Old Testament. So they start to build. Leaders are raised up. This this is very encouraging to me as a pastor. I cannot do what needs to be done in the church. I see so many things that need to be done in the church. I look at this city and I see so many ministries that need to happen in the church. I want to see a people mightily unleashed, building. I want to do it, get it done. And I can, I've only got... One life to live and a family and I I need sleep at night and you know so what am I gonna do? Well, I'm gonna do my best to do to do the haggai and Zechariah thing. That's my job, at Bethlehem. I got some other jobs, but that's my main job, I think. To do the Haggai and Zechariah thing. To prophesy to you Uh, the Word of God, the name of God, and then watch him raise up Mitch Pearson's and others, elders, and Sunday school teachers, and kids' workers, and witnesses in the community, and the pro life committee is meeting right now as we're talking. You just raise up people, and, and they start working because no longer are they going to listen to the discouraging voices anymore. See how it works? But there was a languishing time. And then he raised up Haggai, Zechariah, and some of these others. The son of Jehoshaddai arose, began to build. At that time, Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, he's a bad guy here, and and Bozani and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus, Who issued this? A decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure. Then we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this uh, building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report should come to Darius, and then a written reply be returned concerning it. When I read this this afternoon, I accept. I'm, I hope I'm not reading in too much here. Let I hope these things can have a proper inspiration like this. When I read this, the eye of their God was on the elders. Okay, The elders have a 24-hour retreat at Bethlehem coming up on Friday, 5 o'clock. Friday 5 till Saturday at 5. And I believe the eye of God is upon us. And I believe he's raising up encouragement rather than discouragement. But would you core people right here? I forgot to say this on Sunday. So most of our people don't know this is happened. But would you pray for us? Write it down somewhere, 5 o'clock, Friday night until 5 o'clock, Saturday night. The elders are going to try to process some of this long-range planning things, worship things, structure things, staffing things, and so on. And we want to hear God. We're going to fast and pray and worship. And and you could pray Acts 13 for us. When the teachers of Antioch were praying and fasting, no, 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 it says fasting and worshiping The Holy Spirit said, set aside Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I've called them. And the world was never the same again, ever, because of that missionary journey. And if God spoke like that to us this Saturday morning when we're worshiping and fasting. We're going to send to Darius the king and find out what's going on here and stop this thing. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search. This is what they wrote to Darius. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. If it it be uh, that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send to us the decision concerning this matter. So they think they're going to get this thing stopped by writing to Darius. And uh, are they going to be surprised? I think so. I think so. Right. Darius has taken the scene and then Artaxerxes is coming after him. Then Darius issued a decree. So now he's got the letter and he's going to respond. He issued a decree and search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon and in Ecbatana, in the fortress, which is in the province of Medea. A scroll was found. There's no accident here, folks. A scroll was found, and there was written in it as follows. Memorandum. In the first year of Cyrus, Cyrus, the king of, of the king, issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple, the place where the sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt. Aha! So Darius finds that it was so. How's he going to respond? Now, therefore, Tadanai, governor of the province beyond the river, sheth Thar Bozani, and your colleagues and the officials of the province beyond the river, keep away from there. And others Don't interfere anymore. Leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews be rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, here comes the puncture. I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of the house of God. The full cost, The full cost is to be paid these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river and without delay. Now, you've got to apply this to your life, folks, because what happened here was, number one, a great and wonderful providence happened when God put it in Cyrus to send the people back and build the temple. Why, those Jews must have been thrilled. God reigns. He reigns over Cyrus. Let's go. Let's do it. And after a little while, discouragement set in. And the enemies spoke evil. And they stopped. Then God let that happen. I mean, he's sovereign. He could stop that. Why did he let that happen? But here's one reason. He sends his word. He raises up his leaders. The enemies come. They seek Darius. And Darius not only says keep on doing it, he says, and by the way, I'll pay for it. And so the setback, if you want to graph it, and here they are discouraged in Babylon. Boom. Tremendous encouragement with the providence of God in Cyrus, letting them go. And then a season of discouragement. And all the whys. Why, why, why? Why? We all ask why why in our family life and why in our church life and why in our civic life you know, why certain actions on abortion why not do this law instead of that law why did this person get elected why, why, why and the Bible is replete with stories like this to help us be patient and so the answer is boom Cyrus is going to pay for it that's what's happening I mean, not Cyrus, Darius. Cyrus took him so far, and Darius, another pagan king, is going to take him the rest of the way. So God reigns over Cyrus to get it started. He reigns over Darius to get it paid for. And had they known, I use the analogy, I think in Future Grace, in the chapter on patience, that if you knew that uh, when you got a broken leg, they were going to have to go in there and set it and then when they went in they found a tumor and they take it out and it's beautifully contained and close it up and say no problem you don't even need any therapy here but three more months and you'd be a dead man. You, if you knew that as you lay there on the ski slope with your vacation ruined and a broken leg if you knew that that's what God was doing you wouldn't, you wouldn't complain. And I, I'm here to tell you, in the name of Jesus Christ, He is always doing that. Romans eight twenty-eight. 28. It's not my word. That's God's word. He is always doing that. Amen. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> When I say let, um, I am using language to make a real distinction, but not the one that you're hearing. I do not imply he's out of control when I say let. I imply God's causality is different in different events. Some things he causes very immediately and very directly, and other things he causes through secondary and tertiary Causality in the world and the let implies there's more distance here between the active hand of God and the event so that I have a place for Satan to move around in the world and I have a place for you to move around in the world but I do not ever have an ultimate place for Satan or an ultimate place for human willing that is no human will and no satanic will ultimately causes anything God is the ultimate cause of everything, including all the pain of this, this downward spiral right here. You say, when I say, God let this happen, He let Shethar, Bose, and I and these others give them grief for a few months or years, I, I don't mean they were out of His control. He could have cut that off any time He wanted. But He gives them leash, as it were, and His control here, I think, is a little different from his control here because when he worked on Cyrus it says this it, we'll see it in Darius in a minute but when he worked on Cyrus it says he what were the words he he stirred him up yeah he stirred him up it doesn't say that about Sheth Barzoni Sheth in the same way There was a, there was enough stuff already resident there in his mind that God could kind of Let him have some leash to do what he knew he would do, and what he ultimately, through all the millions of influences that came to bear to make Shethar Bosanai who he was, God was in charge of. That's a good. I'm glad you asked that because um, I know that in using language like that, I'm, I'm liable to be misunderstood one way or the other. If I if I say if I say God caused with every single thing. I think I would be misleading because I wouldn't be making some distinctions that the Bible makes with regard to Satan's causality and human causality and so on. Good. Um. Right. Right. It's a, it's, I think it is a true statement if you define it carefully, but you, we've got to you, you've got to use language more with more nuanced care. You can't just use one word to describe everything God does. Jan, same. Say, allow and let would be the same. That's right. That that's the word I was using. God allowed this. God allowed this. See, the re- I appreciate Dennis' question because there are many people who disagree with my theology who handle tragedies in our lives by using the "allow" language and don't believe the "cause" language. They don't believe it. So Mitch is dealing right now, kind of pastoral care situation with a friend of his in the East Coast, whose last night his five-month-old baby died in bed. Now, when Mitch talks to him, he needs delicate, careful, true, sensitive language. Because if I was reading between the lines as Mitch was praying tonight, this fellow is questioning his faith and Mitch's faith, and he's probably going to hit Mitch if he hasn't already with, so do you think God killed my baby? And we need to find ways of answering that with true language, what would I say? I would say, I mean, I, I would need to know the guy. I would need to hear his heart. I would need to know where, what, what he's thought before. Pastoral counsel is always governed by a hundred things, but I would, I would, I would say. You know, uh, Dave, I didn't get any comfort back in 1974 in thinking that God had lost control of the universe when my mother was killed. That may be all I need to say about that. Or I might say... um, The most important thing you need to think about right now, Dave, is that all of God's power is available to you for your comfort. And that Christ came into the world to bear every kind of pain and suffering that we've ever known so that he could be a faithful high priest to sympathize with you in your tragedy. Or you could say you know there are some big, universal, heavy theological issues that are probably best not to settle in the moment of pain. Or it may be that God would simply appoint that Mitch would say, You know, Dave, Job said when all ten of his children were killed the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yeah, he took he took your child and he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He's trying to get your attention. He wants you that much. He'd like you to join your child someday. Because understanding is Dave might not be a believer. You might be that You might be that risky. But my point, I'm glad this came out, because the point there is language doesn't you don't have to lie to people. I'm not saying lie to people. I'm saying there are all kinds of ways to handle truth. You can handle it with a sledgehammer, or you can handle it with a with a feather, with a cushion. <clears throat> the summary here of these kings goes like this: um, Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes. The elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo They finished building according to the command of God of Israel and the decree, of Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes. And those three decrees were all of God. Here they are. We we read this one already that the Lord stirred up Cyrus. Here's the other one. The Lord had turned the heart of the king of Assyria, Darius, toward them to encourage them. The Lord did that. And Artaxerxes. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who put such a thing as this into the heart of Artaxerxes. He didn't say he let him do it or he allowed him to do it he speaks aggressively here he speaks forcefully he, he put such a thing as this in into his heart so that he would beautify the house of the lord and so here's the concluding word from proverbs the king's heart is like streams in the water streams of water in the hand of the lord he turns it wherever he wills and that includes bill clinton and uh, gorbachev and margaret thatcher and, Omar Gaddafi, and so on. Let me think. Anybody want to help me? Go ahead, Verna. That's a helpful distinction, although Deanna is saying it's not helpful to her. That is, the distinction between the permissive will of God and the directive or decretive, or there are a lot of names for it, decree will of God, um, is not helpful because she is so completely uh, persuaded, as I am, it sounds like, that God decrees all things, even the things he permits, that it's uh, obscuring the facts rather than clarifying them to say he let this happen. But now you ask the question are there Bible verses that talk in that language? And I'm almost certain that there are. So let me just kind of get one of them up here in the front of the computer. Um, what? Is he? give an example? Um I'm gonna to have to get back to you with those verses. Um I would like I'm I'm glad you are stumbling the way you're stumbling rather than over the cause language. But I, I would I would uh, uh I, I would like us I'll try to find biblical warrant, biblical explicit warrant, and I'm just drawing a blank here, for the use of that language. Most people just take it for granted, um, but it's not to be taken for granted. but you don't hear that that what he's saying is the words let and allow and permit still imply in God's case ultimate control but not immediate causality there's intermediate causes that are functioning that he's allowing to function so uh, when when I'll bet, with regard to your kids, if they do something wrong, you're hesitant to say, God made you do that. Or if they said, God made me do it, you'd probably say, well, wait a minute here. <laughs> we got to massage this language a little bit here. God made me do it. What... Yeah, well, but she's, she's saying, God made me do it. God made me do it. So they, they, they steal something from the refrigerator. You tell them, don't touch that till supper time. And they take it. And they say, God reigns. He's in. And que uh, Sarah so so Um And I would say to my sons, um, God has set up the universe such that there are intermediate causes. <laughs> Barnabas. <laughs> and uh, when those causes create evil, he punishes them and holds them accountable. And they say, oh, "I don't think that's possible for him to be totally in control and hold intermediate causes accountable for doing evil things." And I'd say, "You may not think it's possible, but the, the Bible says it's so, and I will now spank you to demonstrate a, the, a theological principle. I will show you the character of God and the way his universe works by paddling your bottom. That, that's the way I would respond to a stealing out of the refrigerator to a 12-year-old. Anyway, um, now we're, our time is over, but um, I wanted this, this last point that we're ending on. I probably can't make it in the time I have available, but I'm going to try. Um, in Acts chapter 4 when Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews are gathered together to kill Jesus it says in Acts 4 26 um, that they were gathered together to do what thy hand and thy purpose predestined To occur. So all of Pilate's, I see no fault in this man, you kill him. All that expediency was ordained of God. All of Herod's mockery with the robe and the crown of thorns, it's of God. Every hammer blow on the nails is of God. So God rules. That's quoted in a prayer in Acts 4 which shows that the sovereign rule of God that is so thorough that it controls Pilate, Herod, soldiers, and Jews, that it controls all of those, is a God to whom it is not foolish or irrational to pray that things be one way and not another way. Isn't that amazing? I was going to end by showing you that that prayer, in view of a God who rules and controls all things, is not pointless. Because the theology that He does rule is expressed in the middle of a prayer that He would grant them to be filled with the Holy Spirit and speak the Word of God with boldness. God folds our prayers into that causality in mysterious ways that makes our prayers effectual, not meaningless. In fact, I would argue if God couldn't control Pilate, this prayer was meaningless. Oh, God, stretch forth your hand and restrain evil in the world. I can't do that. They've all got free will. Prayer assumes the right of God to intrude in the lives of rulers and everybody else. How do you pray for an unbelieving loved one? Don't touch them. Don't get near. Don't infringe upon their free will. Don't move so decisively that they're brokenhearted and repent. But that's, we're talking January now. January's issues. One other point from that Acts thing. That whole prayer was elicited by Peter Peter. And John, being arrested, being threatened, being put in jail overnight, then being released and being told, Don't you dare speak this way again in Jerusalem. And them saying to the ruler whom God rules and ordains that he be, Whether you think we should speak or not, you judge. But we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. In other words, not only prayer is rational inside God's total control of rulers, resistance is rational. Resisting the very things that God ordains to take place is reasonable. So I'm saying this at the end here, lest you walk out of here, fatalists. Thinking, oh, If God rules the kings, if God rules the church, if God rules the traffic, if if he decides whether I get home tonight, well, I'll just take my hands off the steering wheel. Close my eyes. I talked to a guy who did that one time. For a quarter of a mile on the freeway. Just test God. Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you should pray that things be different with confidence. And when you see sin in rulers, you should resist it. And let nobody say, oh, but, but God ordains rulers and God ordains that. Say, well, yeah, but he ordains the resistance too. Witness Acts 5.29. Let's pray. Lord, clarify, I pray. Deepen our understanding. This whole prayer here in Acts 4 was leading towards powerful, bold, spirit-filled witness in Jerusalem and hundreds and thousands were coming to Christ because these saints believed what they believed. So I pray that you would release us this week. Lord, as these folks go home tonight, may they pray for words to speak at work tomorrow that will be unleashed with power for the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.